We made it to episode 20. Woohoo! With that being said, welcome to episode 20. I'm Maria. And I'm Caitlin. Yeah. <laughs> Are you ready for today? I don't know. Am I? You should be. Yeah? I'm excited. Because we're we're gonna dive into something that may or may not get me in trouble with God. the government. Uh, anyways, <laughs> I'm not with her. I'm separate. <laughs> All right, so we're gonna dive in with the true crime fact of the day. We're just gonna get right into it. Okay. All right, yes, ma'am. So <laughs> September 24th of 1969, the trial of the Chicago Seven begins. Oh. It was set before Judge Julius Hoffman. Initially, there were eight defendants and the group known as, or was known as the Chicago Eight. But one, Bobby Seal of the Black Panthers, denounced Hoffman as a racist and demanded a separate trial. Oh. Yes. The seven other defendants, including David Dillinger, uh, Dillinger, um, of the National Mobilization Committee to End the War in Vietnam, otherwise known as MOBE, Rennie Davis and Tom Hayden of MOBE and Students for a Democratic Society, and Jerry Rubin and Abby Hoffman of the Youth International Party, or Yippies, were accused of conspiring to incite a riot at the 1968 Democratic National Convention. At the height of the anti-war and civil rights movements, these young leftists had organized protest marches, and rock concerts at the Democratic National Convention. Okay. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> During the event, clashes broke out between the protesters and the police and eventually turned into full-scale rioting, complete with tear gas and police beatings. The press, already there to cover the Democratic Convention, denounced the overreaction by police and Chicago Mayor Richard Daley the Chicago Seven were indicted for violating the Rap Brown Law, which had been tagged onto the Civil Rights Bill earlier that year by conservative senators. The law made it illegal to cross state lines in order to riot or to conspire to use interstate commerce to incite rioting. President Johnson's Attorney General, Ramsey Clark, refused to prosecute the case. Shortly after the trial began, Seal loudly protested by attempting to examine his own witnesses. Judge Hoffman took the unusual measure of having Seal bound and gagged at the defendant's table before eventually separating his trial and sentencing him to 48 months in prison. Sorry, I'm talking really fast because I'm excited. (laughs) (laughs) With encouragement from defense attorney William Kunst, (laughs) Kunstler. <laughs> Not what you think I said, ass. Oh, you definitely said what I think you said. Anyway. Oh, God. The seven other defendants did whatever they could to disrupt the trial through such acts as reading poetry and chanting Hare Krishna. Oh. While the jury was deliberating their verdict, Judge Hoffman held the defendants in contempt of court for their behavior and sentenced them to up to 29 months in jail. William received a four-year sentence, 
partly for calling Hoffman's court a medieval torture chamber. <laughs> Five of the Chicago Seven were convicted of lesser charges. In 1970, the convictions and contempt charges against the Chicago Seven were overturned on appeal. Abby Hoffman remained a well-known culture activist until his death in 1989. Tom Hayden went on to a career in politics and marriage to actress Jane Fonda and ultimately died in 2016. So, I kind of have to laugh because... I don't want that cup. I know. I got Starbucks cup. <laughs> they had a bunch of them, but the Meyer in that. Oh. If I go back, yes. Anyways, um, so <laughs> you see like riots nowadays, and they were nothing like they were back then. Oh no! Like riots today are like a thousand times worse than they were back then. So for them to be tried for inciting a riot when it was really just, you know, them being mad and getting a mob of people together. Um, it was nowhere as deadly as the riots were when you think about like what happened after George Floyd and all that stuff. So that being said, do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? I don't care, but the way you're smiling at me is that you want to go first. So I'll let you decide. Well, I'm going to go first. Okay. Welcome to Conspiracy Theory 101. Oh, Lord, here we go. Operation Mockingbird is an alleged large-scale program of the United States Central Intelligence Agency that began in the early years of the Cold War and attempted to manipulate news media for propaganda purposes. Operation Mockingbird recruited leading American journalists into a propaganda network and influenced the actions of front groups. CIA support of front groups was exposed when a 1967 Ramparts magazine article reported that the National Student Association received funding from the CIA. In 1975, Church Committee Congressional Investigators revealed agency connections with journalists and civic groups. At various times, under its own initiative and in accordance with directives from the President of the United States or the National Security Council staff, the CIA has attempted to influence public opinion both in the United States and abroad. So this isn't the first or the last time anything like this has happened. The media oftentimes does this as well, all on its own, which is why you see like the different media outlets Posting the same storyline of an account of something happening, but different accounts of actually being done. So when you see like Fox News talking about we'll use voter fraud. Okay. You see Fox News saying one thing, you see CNN saying another. It's all combating itself. Oh yeah. This is basically the same thing. It's just done by the media. It's not, it's air quote, not government funded. Hence why I said it's probably going to get me in trouble. You're already getting scratched, so. Anyways, it all begins in 1947. The Soviet-dominated Communist Information Bureau, or the CIB, 
was created by Joseph Stalin. This conference, at which it was created, was a response of Eastern European countries to invitations to attend the July 1947 Paris Conference on the Marshall Plan. The CIB's stated purpose was to organize the work of communist parties under the Soviet direction, so Joseph Stalin called the conference in response to divergences among the Eastern European governments on whether or not to attend the Paris Conference on Martial Aid in July. The initial seat of the CIB was located in Belgrade, but after expulsion of Yugoslavia from the group in 1948, the seat was moved to Bucharest, Romania. In response, CIA psychological operators decided that the CIB-controlled groups could best be countered by Western groups, including not only the anti-communist right-wing groups, but groups across the ideological spectrum. What the fuck just happened? <laughs> I had a stroke. Did you have a seizure? <laughs> no. Are you sure? Yeah. Can you feel your left heart? <laughs> yes, I can feel everything. I um, Many of them were unaware of CIA subsidies or knowledge was restricted to very few leaders, and thus these groups were not expected to follow orders. There were front magazines and organizations, however, the magazine's partisan review and the new leader received CIA funds in one way or another, but owed nothing to the agency, either in their founding or in their operations, and were not considered front organizations. Other groups formed by the CIA, however, were true fronts, although some of the individuals being sponsors were unaware of the source of funds. So they were doing it covertly. Yes. Philip Aggie suggested that funding from the CIA to the National Student Association, which had been formed in 1947, may have begun in 1950. Tom Braden, head of the CIA International Organizations Division, did not disclose what year this funding began, but it clearly began in the 1950s and continued until 1967. Braden said that the division was established in 1950 when the director of Central Intelligence, Alan W. Dules, overruled Frank Wisner, who headed the Office of Policy Coordination, or the OPC. Until 1952, the OPC was the covert action branch of the U.S. government, loosely part of the CIA, but also with direct access to and appeal of the Secretaries of Defense and State. This conspiracy theory was proven to be true, just so you know. Okay. <laughs> 1950 also marked the beginning of the 10-year crusade for freedom and operated to generate American support for Radio Free Europe that was covertly backed by the CIA. Another organization set up on the 26th of June in 1950 as the cultural arm of the Internal Organizations Division was the Congress for Cultural Freedom. Whatever merits or demerits of the CIA's methods, most of these groups were served or served the U.S. well in its contest for the faith and understanding of the world's workers and thinkers, students and teachers, refugees from yesterday, and leaders of tomorrow. This led the appoint- to the appointment of a presidential commission headed by Under Secretary of State Nicholas 
Katzenbach to figure out how the gap left by the CIA should be filled. A politically ambitious former California newspaper publisher who served with the CIA between 1950 and 1954 added further details. In an article in the Saturday Evening Post, Braden indignantly, indignantly, dear Lord, defended the CIA against charges that it had been immoral by recording some of the extremely useful things that it accomplished early in the Cold War. By 1953, we were operating or influencing international organizations in every field where communist fronts had previously seized ground and in some where they had not even begun to operate. The money we spent was very little by Soviet standards, but that was reflected in the first rule of our operational plan, limit the money to amounts private organizations can credibly spend. The other rules were equally obvious. Legitimate existing organizations disguise the extent of American interest protect the integrity of the organization by not requiring it to support every aspect of official American policy. A front organization organized in 1959 and was the Independent Service for Information, set up at Harvard specifically for the purpose of getting some young anti-communist Americans to attend a huge youth festival being organized by the communists in Vienna. Among those sponsored were Gloria Steinem, who had just spent a year and a half in India, where she befriended Indira Gandhi and the widow of revolutionary humanist M.N. Roy, and had met a researcher who seems to have been a CIA agent or contact. Steinem was hired to run the ISI and recruit knowledgeable young Americans who could debate effectively with the communist organizers of the festival, defending the United States against communist criticism. Ralph McGehee, (laughs) a former CIA officer, stated that the CIA often placed news stories anonymously in news publications to spread false ideas favorable to the CIA goals. Stories that... CIA plant the CIA planted dear flipping God get it together <laughs> might be picked up and further spread by additional newspapers and other third parties in a slightly altered form or even picked up as news and then rewritten by a journalist and thus planted by the CIA to shape public opinion could circle back and contaminate the CIA's own information files an example given by McGeehee, <laughs> based on his own experience as the CIA fabrication in 1965 of a story about weapon shipments sent by sea to the Viet Cong in a CIA effort to prove foreign support for the Viet Cong. The CIA took tons of communist-made weapons from its own warehouses, loaded them on a Vietnamese coastal vessel, faked a firefight, and then called in Western reporters to prove North Vietnamese aid to the Viet Cong. Right. (laughs) The story got picked up by other news sources so much that the Marines later began to patrol the coast to intercept reported contraband of the type earlier found. Oh. Yes. 
In March of 1967, Ramparts Magazine reported that the CIA had been funding the National Student Association through a series of foundation cutouts, resulting journalistic and other investigations led to the cessation of most CIA subsidies. The Church report stated that prior to the report's completion, the CIA had already begun restricting the use of its journal journalists. Get it together, Caitlin. Jesus. Listen. Well, I burnt my mouth <laughs> on a flipping egg roll. Jeez. Whose problem is that? Mine. Okay. <laughs> According to the report, former CIA director William Colby told the committee that in 1973 he had issued instructions that as a general policy, the agency will not make any use of staff employees of U.S. publications, which have a substantial impact influence on public opinion. In February of 1976, Director George H.W. Bush announced an even more restrictive policy. Effective immediately, CIA will not enter into any paid or contractual relationship with any full-time or part-time news correspondent accredited by any U.S. news service, newspaper, periodical, radio, or television network or station. By the time the Church Committee report was completed, the report stated all CIA contacts with accredited journalists had been dropped. The committee noted, however, that accredited correspondent meant the ban was limited to individuals formerly authorized by contract or issuance of press credentials to represent themselves as correspondents, and that non-contract workers who did not receive press credentials, such as stringers or freelancers, were not included. So if they were, okay, we'll use, like, the media now. Or, actually, no, we'll use Spider-Man as a reference, okay? <laughs> I love you. <laughs> so, <laughs> Peter Parker, yeah. he was a freelance journalist uh-huh. and photographer. Uh-huh. He would technically not be included. However, the Daily Bugle is accredited, so they would be included. Okay. So that kind of makes sense? Yeah. <laughs> in the mid-1990s, the CIA named Chase Brandon, an operations officer who was assigned to South America, as liaison to Hollywood. Brandon's films, or film credits, include The Recruit, The Sum of All Fears, Enemy of the State, Bad Company, and In the Company of Spies. He was consulted for television programs, including The Agency and Alias, and he has appeared on Discovery, Learning Channel, History Channel, PBS, A&E, and has been interviewed on E! Entertainment, Access Hollywood, and Entertainment Tonight. Well, PBS, it's gotta be <laughs> The Guardian journalist John Patterson criticizes the CIA assistance as being only complimentary productions, including not running material such as the original pilot episode of The Agency, it featured the spy masters pre- preventing a plot by bin Laden or a plot by a bin Laden backed terrorist cell to blow up function fictionalized Herods. The airing of such an episode might have pointed up the real CIA's corresponding lack of success in foiling the world trade center attacks. According to Brandon, the agency would not endorse spy game starring Robert Redford and Brad Pitt. The final rewrite showed our senior management in an insensitive light, 
and we just wouldn't want to be a part of that kind of project. Brandon, who also withheld approval from 24, a Fox series about a fictional intelligence agency, CTU, that also suggests all is not hunky-dory with the company's upper upper management (laughs) (laughs) and the born identity based on the 1984 novel by Robert Lundlum was so awful that I tossed it in the burn bag after page 25. So the CIA even had like an influence on Hollywood. So if anything got too close to the real thing, They'd trash it. They'd mm-hmm. pitch it. If it wasn't... How do I word this cor- correctly? If it wasn't fear-inducing, <laughs> they didn't want it. If it didn't make you question what was going on, they didn't want it. Sounds about right. Patterson observed, it used to be the case that if a movie explicitly condemned CIA actions such as the movie Under Fire, the studios could be counted on to bury it. That was no longer true after Missing won Jack Lemmon an Oscar in 1982, and Iran-Contra slimed the CIA in the late 1980s. Since then, CIA Renegade has become a dependable staple, not just of big-budget movies like Enemy of the State, but also of a million straight-to-cable action schlockfests starring Chuck Norris and Steven Seagal. I think that's my new favorite one. <laughs> Schlockfest. <laughs> Other films that the CIA has provided assistance to include the 1992 film version of the Tom Clancy novel Patriot Games and the 2003 The Recruit. According to director Roger Donaldson, when the agency commits to providing their support to a project, that can include a let, letting a photographer shoot stills to help in designing set, ugh, sets or, in certain instances, having the actors spend time in the buildings themselves. By visiting Langley, the director says he came to understand how the space worked and looked. I needed a real sense of how a new person would feel when they saw the place for the first time. So... Here's where we're going to go back to the media today. Mm-hmm. And we're going to use COVID-19. Oh, Lord. So you have these doctors that are basically being told to shut up. Because they're proving the science that the CD has found wrong. Yeah. So we saw that in um, Mount Vernon... Indiana, there was a doctor who went in front of a school board and basically said, you know, hey, none of what the CDC is telling you is helping. Here's the actual facts behind it. Here's the science behind it. And it disproved absolutely everything that the CDC is telling you. The CDC and mainstream media are doing exactly what the CIA did. They are exaggerating the truth or spreading fear 
and propaganda to scare people. And you, they're using scare tactics to get their point across because they want to conform. The more you ask questions, the more the government is scared. And that's why the CIA did what they did. They didn't want you to ask questions. They didn't want you to know what was really going on. They wanted you to blindly follow them like sheep. And that's exactly what the media is doing now. And what our government, and you couldn't see it, but I heavily used air quotes there. (laughs) What our government, and we'll get into that conspiracy theory later, wants you to believe trying to get a shutdown already. I am not. We have freedom of speech, okay? Well. Not if you keep up with that shit. I don't know for how long as, you know, everything else in the Constitution is going to shit, but um, if it's not making you blindly follow your government, they want no part of it. So, yeah. Welcome to Caitlin's Conspiracy Theory 101 class. And if you have any other conspiracy theories you'd like me to dive into, I do go pretty deep down the rabbit hole um, on a lot of them. So the ones that aren't going to get us tracked and or have shut down by the NSA knocking on what is it? What is it? The yeah. What what is it? The people who control like the radio and stuff like that, and what you can air on TV. FCC? Yeah, the FCC. Before the FCC decides to, you know, shut this shit down. Let's not do that. Yeah. Anyways. (laughs) (laughs) What do you got for me? Are you ready for a ghost story? Of course. Okay. Every time. Sorry, I need my coffee. We are going I haven't to, even opened mine yet. <laughs> we're going to Birmingham, Alabama. Roll Tide. I feel like if I don't say it, I'm going to get smited. <laughs> so, Roll Tide. As long as you don't say War Eagle, we're okay. Oh, no, no, no. My, my grandpa, like, the sad thing is, I like two college football teams. And it's very, very bad in our house. During football season, Ohio State. Oh, fuck. <laughs> We're putting now as the last episode. <laughs> Ohio State and Alabama. And it, it, it gets very interesting. Anyways, so, continue. Have you heard of Sloth's Furnace? Yes. Well, let's do a little history on that first. That was uh, one of my favorite Ghost Adventure episodes when, I you know, I fangirled all the time and watched every single episode as it came out. Um, yeah. Anyway. Set your TiVo. <laughs> I did not. I watched it live. Commercials oh and all. Bad. So we're going to do a little history first. Okay. Um, Colonel James Weathers Sloss was a founder of Birmingham. He promoted railroad development across the state and he participated in the Pratt Coke and Coal Company which was one of the city's first manufacturers. In 1881, Colonel Sloss formed his own company, the Sloss Furnace Company, and began construction of Birmingham's first glass furnace, which was on 50 acres of land that was donated by 
Elton Land Company. Oh. Um, Harry Hargreaves was the engineer in charge of building the plant. It was made up of two Whitwell-type furnaces. Good luck with that one. Yeah. Each furnace was 60 feet tall and 18 feet in diameter. So, large yes. flaming fire things. Yes. <laughs> the plant was first fired in April 1882 okay. and produced 24,000 tons of iron during its first year of operation. Oh, geez. Sloss Iron won a bronze medal at the Southern Exposition held in 1883 in Louisville. Okay. And in 1886, Sloss retired and sold the company to a group of investors who reinvented the company in 1889 as Sloss Sheffield Steel and Iron Company. And that group, the Sloss Sheffield Company, um, regularly forced African American convict laborers that were purchased in collusion with local sheriffs. The sheriffs would arrest mainly African American men under fake charges, and the Sloss Company would purchase these men. Of course they would. This allowed slavery to continue after the Civil War. Because they were garbage as humans! As you talk in your tones everywhere. <laughs> hey. <laughs> That's what happens when you shake it. Why would you shake it? You have to. I'm never shaking that. It makes it taste better. Because it's kind of frothy. <laughs> I'm a basic bitch, okay? As I drink out of my black studded Starbucks cup. Yes. <laughs> At least it's not pumpkin spice. Okay, it's milk. Uh, mine may or may not have pumpkin spice. <laughs> I figured you would. <laughs> All right. Oh, where did you stop asking? In 1952, Sloss Furnaces was acquired by the U.S. Pipe and Foundry Company and sold nearly two decades later. In 1952, Sloss Furnaces was acquired by the U.S. Pipe and Foundry Company and it was sold again nearly two decades later in 1969 to the Jim Walter Corporation. Oh. Birmingham had been suffering air pollution problems in the 1950s and 60s due to the iron and steel industry in the area. Shocker. It's not like we know that. Right. In Northwest Indiana. Right. Um, federal legislation encouraged the closure of older and out of date smelting works. Which I'm not mad at. The Jim Walter Company closed the furnaces two years later and then donated the property property Get it together. <laughs> to the Alabama State Fair Authority. The authority determined that the redevelopment was not feasible and made plans to demolish the furnaces. However, local preservationists formed the Sloss Furnace Association. Association? Yep. To lobby for preservation of the site. In 1976, the site was documented for the Historic American Engineering Record, and its historic significance was detailed in a study commissioned by the city, and Birmingham residents voted in 1977 to preserve the site. So it's still standing. Yes. Obviously. So we are going to start with the most famous one, uh-huh. which was James Slag Wormwood. This was in the early 1900s. I'm doing like my happy dance over here because I know where this is going. <laughs> being thrown into a pot of iron. Well. Uh, Slag was a foreman on the graveyard ship. And he was in charge of a skeleton group. Crew? <laughs> I haven't had enough caffeine, apparently. 
skeleton crew of 150. During the summer, the plant can reach more than 120 degrees. No, thank you. Nope. Alabama heat is not something you want to fuck with. No. <laughs> I know it's probably nowhere near as hot. But in the shipping department mm -hmm. at my last job, and we had to drive forklifts into these semi-trailers. And the heat index one day was like 120-something. So inside those trailers, oh, sure. it's like an oven. Like you can see the heat just radiating out of them onto the dock. I think I loaded seven trailers in that heat that day by myself with like a little itty-bitty tiny like five inch fan blowing on me mm -hmm. and that was it no so it was just hot air pushing hot air yeah. and it was horrible alabama i could only imagine like, how bad it was down there alabama heat is like wet heat right it's humid it's nasty right like we the get ass is real we get swap ass so i can only imagine what it's like down there because like she said the heat is completely different it's down nasty. there. We get humidity up here, and but it is nowhere like near that. as bad as it is down there. Nothing. Spending the summers down there when I was little. Ooh. Like, we ended up <laughs> going to Myrtle Beach. And being off the beach, you have that, like, wet, thick, humid air. It's so bad. It was so hard for me to breathe being from Indiana down there. I was like, so bad. I'm overweight. I'm <laughs> fat. Fat, overweight, not able to breathe was Disney. not a good combination. If you don't have air conditioning in your car right. or in your house, you're fat in your house. <sighs> anyway, um, Slag made his workers take dangerous risks and force them to speed up production. During his employment, 47 workers died at the plant. Jesus. Mind you, this was 10 times more than any other ship in the history of the plant. Well, I mean, if it's night shift, I, I kind of understand it. I mean, how often have I fallen asleep on you at work? I mean, yeah, but that's that comes with the territory. Right. Nights sucks. Yes. But, yeah. In October of 1906, Sly was at the top of the highest furnace known as Big Alice. He lost his footing and fell into a pool of melted iron ore. Ugh. This eviscerated his body. <laughs> can you nothing left <laughs> okay this is where the morbid in me comes out can you imagine the sizzle that he would have made you're a disgusting woman <laughs> <laughs> i will never eat bacon again <laughs> oh fuck can you imagine the sizzle of his body what <sighs> god bless america <laughs> what am I supposed to do with you, goddammit? I don't know. <laughs> oh, shit. Anyways, uh, continue. It was noted that Slag had never went to the top of this furnace before. Um, workers cited that he must have been dizzy from the methane gas that was created by the furnace. So, an accident. Yeah. Maybe. Because some of the workers had enough of Slag, and some thought that he'd been thrown into the well, I mean, could have been. However, nobody's ever watched Trial of Earth, so. Of course not. Let's see. 
um, sloss industry soon stopped graveyard shifts, citing numerous reports of accidents and, quote, strange incidents that decreased production. Oh. Workers started complaining of an unnatural presence. Can you picture this? Sicily, 1950. <laughs> <laughs> you okay? but out of fucking furnace. <laughs> 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 Thanks, Crema, for Golden Girls love. <laughs> oh, God. Can you imagine being at work, turning around, and seeing a person-ish that's, like, melted halfway? Well, I know the feeling of being watched while you're at work. I think I will. Um, <laughs> however, well, yeah. by something like that, that would that would be. I, I think uh, I would just die right there. Yeah, I think I would just die. Yeah, that um, that's definitely heart attack inducing. <laughs> yeah, let's um, not talk about that. Well, anyway, <laughs> in 1926, a night watchman was injured after being quote pushed from behind and told angrily in a deep voice to get back to work. He searched the ground, but was unable to find it. In 1947, three supervisors went missing. They were found unconscious and locked in a small boiler room in the southeastern part of the plant. They could explain what happened to them or how they got there. The only thing they remembered was being approached by a man whose skin appeared to be badly burned and shouted at them to, quote, push some steel. Well, that's definitely, um... Bye! <laughs> yeah. I think I would be piecing out right. A of my skin, B of that furnace. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I feel like the conducted energy would be enough for that spirit to manifest itself. And physically reach out and touch somebody. But to knock them unconscious... I don't know. All I see is a melted hand touching something and like leaving residue and skin skin quote sticking. This is going to define our friendship. Have you ever seen Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Cartoon? Okay. Did you see any of the parts where the cartoons are melted in the green ooze? Mm -hmm. That's all I can picture Mm -hmm. is like Mm -hmm. the hand doing that. Yep. Uh, where did I go? Okay, 1971. So we're skipping 30 yeah. years. The night before the plant closed, the night watchman on duty was Samuel Blumenthal. And he was taking one last look around. He came face to face with the most frightening thing he'd ever seen, his words. He described it as simply evil and a half-man, half-demon who tried to push him up the stairs. When he refused, the figure began to beat him with his fists. Upon examination, Blumenthal was covered in intense burns, and he died before ever returning to Sloss. Yeah, fuck that. Kind of makes me think of Lucifer. Which... Like, literally, or the show? The show. Um, When he goes into demon form, and that's all I can picture, is, like, 
charred flesh and yeah. yeah. Well, <sighs> according to Birmingham police, there have been over 100 reports of suspected paranormal activity. Mm-hmm. Anything from steam whistles blowing by themselves to sightings of an apparition or physical assault. I kind of want to go. I do not. If I saw that thing standing behind I'm me, sorry, I would probably but... piss myself. <laughs> like with I'd most, still be doing the fuck out. <laughs> <laughs> Jinkies. Anyways, <laughs> you like Scoob? <laughs> we need to stop. Coffee? We need to stop recording these at like two a.m. Oh. Dear God. That's the best time to do it. We're not this funny during the day. Right. But, anyways, like, most of our paranormal stories that we have covered so far, I kind of want to go. Like, I just, I don't don't know. I want to go somewhere where I'm going to be burned by something that I can't see. Well, I wouldn't want to go at night. Well, then when are you going to go? But I want to go and just, like, explore if that makes sense. Yeah. Like, I don't want to actually go and attempt to be touched by this thing. I just want to go. Like. Yeah, no. Podcast. Like, next week's episode. I kind of want to go. <laughs> I know you told me what you were doing next week. Right? Really? I know. No spoilers. They will find out when the episode releases. <laughs> <laughs> Interestingly. Most of these events happened during September and October, which was the old trade show. Graveyard shift I win. <laughs> well. In 2003, the Alabama Foundation for Paranormal Research investigated Sloss. This is a quote from their website. There is no doubt Sloss is a hotspot for paranormal activity. During our investigations, we pulled data that confirms through our scientific methods and approach that energies are present that cannot be explained. Sloths is one of the most paranormal paranormally <laughs> god damn it. Paranormally active places our team is. There's no C in paranormally. I'm aware. Thank you very much. <laughs> George Frank <now. sighs> Um October fourth of two thousand three, one of their workers, Josh Thomas, had worked with the attraction for many years and suddenly caught fire after seeing a strange shape. Oh. He suffered burns up and down his body and was taken to the hospital. He cannot recall what happened. So he has no idea what happened to him. Okay, so it sounds like I need to take my vacation in October and go work here. No! <laughs> you're lucky you're gonna burst into flames. I know. Spontaneous combustion, that's not so spontaneous. Hey, we'll cover that <laughs> later. Stop it! Oddly enough, this was almost the exact 32nd anniversary of the same Blumenthaler. Oh. So was it Samuel or was it Flag? I would I would think that Samuel wouldn't be benevolent. I don't so. so my last thing is three very short personal stories. Um, this came from the Fright Furnace website. The first one, while walking through the Fright Furnace tour, we entered a tunnel. I was last in line. It was very dark and I found it very hard to see. 
I felt a warm breath on the back of my neck. I already had chills down going the back of my neck. Out of fear of what kind of demonic actor was standing behind me, I jolted in a 180-degree motion to see what it was. But when I turned around and my eyes came to, all I saw was darkness, but not pitch black darkness. I could see a little bit, but I saw nothing. There was no one behind me, no people, no monsters, nothing. Just darkness. Fuck that. <laughs> Says the person who actually wants to go. Fuck that. Right. <laughs> Um, a third one, I am not a paranormal. I did, however, attend the haunted walkthrough in October of last year. The walkthrough itself was fun. We went home after nothing out of the ordinary, right? The day after, my husband told me there was a very dark colored bruise on the back of my arm in the shape of fingerprints. I do not bruise easily. It wasn't there before the walkthrough. I'm still not convinced I had a ghostly encounter, but there's a small part of me that oh. as a that has wondered ever since if maybe it could have been. Am I crazy? Me. No. No, you're not. <laughs> Can't confirm. You're not. And my last one, they were there in 2009. They heard footsteps, even though they were the only one there. It was ice cold in the middle of summer. I had multiple batteries to hide my camera. And as I was walking out, I had the back of my hair stand up. It felt like someone ran their hand through my hair. Mm-hmm. Blah, blah, blah. When I got home, I looked over the photos, and right before it, there was a photo with a purple mist in it. That place freaks me out. So, piggybacking on that, I found one. It says, so my wife and I stopped by Sunday with our dog. I wish I could post the pictures we took. My dog's face was crazy in every picture. It doesn't even resemble her. Her eyes are white. Facial markings look very strange. And even her mouth was distorted looking. She has been lethargic all day today. I also have several pictures of strange orb-like objects all over the site. Yeah, no. (sighs) And this one stood out to me because animals can pick up on shit way before humans can. And the fact that in the pictures there she's distorted almost makes me wonder if maybe she was like it was an attempt on like a skinwalker type situation almost so for it to have that much power yeah nope Mm -mm. well that's all we've got for this episode um social medias twitter is at 10 paranormal with a capital p yes Instagram is 10 underscore zero underscore podcast. 10 and zero are spelled out. Facebook, 10 zero true crime and paranormal stories from behind the headset. I finally remembered it. Stay safe and don't become the next 10 zero.